Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look with the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm really excited because we get to dive into the sport of curling, which we haven't talked about before on this podcast, with Robert and Sylvana Richardson, who both worked out at the curling venue in Ogden, Utah. Uh, Robert and Savannah, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm great. Doing well these days. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Why don't you tell us where you're joining us from? We are in Wisconsin on the West Coast, which is right adjacent to the Mississippi River in a town called La Crosse. We have three colleges here and um, some industry, but... Um, I think it's kind of medical and educational drive our economy. All right. Well, speaking of economy, everybody's economy is a bit weird and wonky right now because of the coronavirus pandemic. So how has COVID affected your particular area, your neck of the woods? We were really very, very strict when we locked down in March. And so we really had few cases, uh, no deaths, um, hospitalizations were low. I would say in the last three weeks, we've kind of spiked a little bit. So, um, you know, as we opened up, so we're looking at uh, a severe state of affairs at the moment. So a lot more of us are looking at how do we prevent things from happening in the future? Yeah, we're in a we're in a situation here where we didn't have much going on in March and April and May. Everything was pretty calm. Then we all got arrogant I guess, or, or a bit careless and Memorial Day weekend comes and we're all having a lot of fun and summer's here and let's go play. And now we have a lot of COVID running around the state of Utah and everybody's trying to figure out what we're going to do with school and all that kind of stuff. Well, aside from COVID craziness, uh, what else are you guys up to these days in La Crosse, Wisconsin? Well, <clears throat> I retired after 43 years of teaching I retired at the very end of 2009. So since then, I've been working in a great place, a financial institution, and I have a title of Director of First Impressions. So that works quite well for me, and um, I really, really enjoy my work. Now, that leads me to say something connected to the Olympics. Last year, I had an opportunity to work with Michael Hopkins, um, who's uh, part of the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation. Turns out Michael was originally from Wisconsin, but that's a separate part of the story. So he and I worked together um, to plan a gold day uh, pass event for my board of directors and um, some executives who were on retreat in uh, Park City. And we had a great time up at the uh, Utah Olympic Park Michael did a great job, and um, we were able to provide the context to all the Olympic venues, the, the bigger picture than Park City. But then we had that great day at the park with all those wonderful activities they have up there as part of the legacy. So uh, that's part of that. I'm also totally involved with the Lacrosse Curling Club, and uh, we are an arena curling club. And I'll get back to that later. So I serve as secretary of the board, and um, I'm the lead instructor working with uh, middle school recreation programs, high school PE and physics classes. 
who are uh, studying, if you will, curling and then collegiate intramurals. And um, I just wanted to add that when I'm teaching anything about the Olympics, I try to go all the way back to Pierre de Coubertin, who had the vision for the Olympics and how way back then in the 1800s, he was envisioning sport uh, in its relation to culture and environment and uh, had a great vision. And that vision is still part of the games. And that makes me so um, admiring <clears throat> of that continuation. So, Bob? So what have I been doing? Um, I have had many years in nursing and education, and currently I'm teaching full-time as a professor in a small private university here in La Crosse. Um, I retired in 2014 from being the dean of the program, but now I'm teaching public health nursing. And we certainly had a, um, an example, uh, a case study to work with this past semester with COVID-19. So we're preparing right now um, of how our public health students can be helping the community as well as our campus with uh, screening and testing and you know, really trying to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, and I also teach a class in mind-body therapies. And actually during the year of the Olympics, I was a visiting scholar at the University of Utah, actually studying mind-body therapies with some of the physicians at the VA Medical Center and a professor at Westminster. So um, kind of had dual work going on during that year. So right now it's um, preparing for the new school year. All right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to talk about so many of the different aspects that you talked about, which is great. And we'll get to a lot of that through the podcast. But I have to come back to one thing that just really struck me. Director of First Impressions. What does a director of First Impressions do and who came up with the title? My supervisor, who's the vice president, senior vice president of administration, came up with the title. And so in our headquarters, you would find me at the center core of the headquarters. If you came in, I would know that you're there to meet the president. Uh, I would have known in advance what you needed if you had anything like maybe some technology needs or um, perhaps if you were coming in for lunch that you had a special diet or whatever, I'd make sure that was all set and ready for you. I'd be able to greet you when you came in with, Christian, it's so good to meet you and, and so glad that you're here. Just like you did for us, you knew we were coming, you knew our names, give us a welcome, and I'd get you right connected with the president or whomever else you were visiting with. Um, I would want to say also that my job would say I give that as great a greeting to the UPS driver, to the Mario courier, to anybody who comes in so that I am the face of our institution. And um, when you walk out, you go, that was nice. Oh, the other thing, when you walked in, right behind me on a big monitor would be a welcome in lights. So <laughs> your name is in lights and you feel real good. All right. Well, I like that director of first impressions because hopefully that leaves a lasting impression yes. on the clients, right? So that's fantastic. Yes. And then Silvana, I want to come back to something you said about preparing for the school year here with COVID and everything. Tell me a little bit about those preparations. What kinds of 
mitigation strategies and social distancing and hygiene and all that kind of stuff are people putting into place or planning on putting into place or discussing what they're going to be putting into place in your area? Well, as professors, um, we have what I call plan A, plan B, and plan C. Um, So we've prepared completely online. We've prepared hybrid so that students are there half the time um, and online half the time. And then, you know, very hopeful, but it probably won't happen that we would be you know, back to the classroom and my students back in clinical. Um, All of the classrooms will be socially distanced um, and students will be tested when they come to the university. Um, They'll they'll be do a self-screening with an app on their phone uh, to see if they have any symptoms and those would be reported. Everyone is to wear a mask. There's a lot of cleaning and sanitation that's been going on all (laughs) summer long. In the residence halls, uh, the rooms will be as much as possible, one per room at the most two, um, and students would have to agree to that. I think um, even the eating in the um, cafeteria will be by, you know, oh, so many students would be going at a time. So, and I'm sure that there's more that will be coming up that we have to think about. And a lot of education, and I think especially peer teaching, so that students would be really talking with each other about the importance of doing all of these things and and keeping themselves safe. Um, We know that uh, college students, you know, want to socialize. I mean, we all want to socialize. And uh, we do have quite a bar scene here in La Crosse. um, So that'll be a big piece of it, you know, helping students to understand the importance of that social distancing. So I think we got a few challenges ahead of us, but I think we can make them work. Well, I appreciate the optimism because we could use a dose of that right now. My, my daughter's at the university. She's studying at the University of Utah, and uh, they're still trying to figure things out as well. They, she has some that are online and a couple of hybrids and one that's it's a dance class, which is still an in-person kind of a thing. You know, it's an elective, but the social aspects of college life and also interacting in person with professors, uh, very important to her. And it's uh, hard to do when when you're all online and distanced. Absolutely. And and I think for us in nursing is the piece of figuring out how do we have um, our how do our partnerships work with not only hospitals, but also community agencies so that they feel comfortable enough to say, yes, we can take on a student and keep our patients safe as well as keep them safe. Um, and that's what we're working out actually this afternoon as we speak. I just wanted to add that just last night, our we're the largest school district for about a two-hour drive in any direction. And the school district just announced that they're opening totally online. So that, and they wanted to give teachers this month to get that all ready. So that's why they went ahead with that decision. Wow. Unprecedented times we live in, no doubt. I I could not have imagined that this would be happening, but here we are and uh, we're trying to make the best of it. It's true. Okay. Now let's get back to curling. Robert, from what you said, it sounds like you've been involved in this sport a long time. I don't know, Silvana, if you've been involved in it as well for many, many years. 
Curling's a great sport for couples, I imagine. But why don't you give us a little bit about the background that you have in the sport and how that eventually led you to Salt Lake? You mentioned something that uh, I guess we hadn't thought about talking, but I arrived in lacrosse to take a professor position at UWL in September of 1990. And Silvana didn't think that I was going to like working in this little town. We're originally from Chicago. And when we finished our doctoral degrees, we took positions out in New England and lived in Providence, Rhode Island, again, an urban environment. So she stayed in Rhode Island while I came out here for a really great teaching position. Well, then in those days, there wasn't computers and those kind of things. So we talked every Sunday night on the phone. And I was just raving about everything here. Just We have a great Oktoberfest celebration. And tied with the Oktoberfest celebration was an open house at the curling club. And everybody said, well, you seem to say you like these winter sports. Why don't you do curling? I didn't even know what it was. I had no idea. Retrospectively, it turns out that where we both lived in Chicago, there was a curling club nearby, but it was affiliated with a country club. And we didn't have the means to be a member of the country club. So we didn't know anything about it and never even wondered, I don't think about it. So, okay, I didn't have anything to do. My wife's out in Rhode Island and I'm here, so I'll go out and try this curling. Well, they were wonderfully welcoming. Curling is as much an intellectual sport as it is a physical sport. I really liked that combination. Um, they put me, they, they gave me some lessons and then kind of our tradition is You'd have a three-person team, and you'd take a new person onto that team, and those three other people become your regular coaches. So I got better kind of quickly. Um, back to Solvana, she finally made a trip out at the very beginning of November that year and to visit me, and I uh, arranged for her to have a little conversation with the dean of nursing over at uh, her college. And uh, while she was here, so she arrived, we had a great snowstorm in progress. It was wonderful. <laughs> and um, then she met this dean following the meeting with the dean. My department had a big potluck lunch to welcome her. So I think there were about 35 people at the lunch. She got to meet everybody I worked with. And it turns out the dean in that conversation offered her a position to start in January. So she came out, and um, I didn't tell her this. And I believe she arrived on a Wednesday, and then it was a day or two later that I said, and on Sunday night, you and I will be curling in the mixed league. And she said, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know how to curl. We'll teach how to curl. So that Sunday, I went to curl, and I am not an athlete uh, at all by any means. But we had very um, oh, patient teachers, and so I got hooked just as much as Robert on doing mixed curling every Sunday. 
and enjoyed the sport just as much as the social hour afterwards, which is really a big part of the sport as well. So, yeah, we both got hooked. I didn't tell her that our teammates, the male part of our teammates, uh, was a world champion curler in advance. I didn't tell her that. So he really did, and his wife did a great job uh, working with us. So then um, I stayed on in uh, leagues um, with men's league and then in the mixed leagues. And um, where we're at now, our curling club, for financial and structural reasons in our building, closed in 1980, 1998. And um, so our stones were put in uh, storage. And then in 2010, nine, 2009, we reopened as an a cur arena curling club. So we had to build our membership base from scratch, um, a small group of us and with these old stones that were in great shape. And we are now um, a five league a week uh, operation. We have youth curlers, high school curlers, college curlers, adult curlers, senior curlers. We got the full gamut. And we're in the process that's on hold because of the COVID response of building our own facility here in town that'll be dedicated ice for curling. Arena ice for curling is a challenge because the Zamboni doesn't work well for us. Curling needs flat ice and the Zamboni, when it goes around and around in the same exact directions all week long, after every hockey practice, figure skating practice, game, um, and it makes a bowl out of the ice. Now, you wouldn't really see it as a spectator. You wouldn't know. Hockey players don't realize it. Figure skaters don't realize it. But if you get any kind of bowl in the ice for curling, the stone will follow the gravitational pull toward the center. And that makes your shot really challenging to complete. But we work with it. We work with it. And that's why we would move toward um, our own building that we call dedicated ice. So coming into present tense, my curling team um, was selected to compete in the 2020 Arena National Curling Championships that had been scheduled for Gillette, Wyoming in May. Obviously, that got canceled. So this isn't true for all teams, but our team was then deferred so that we will compete in the 2021 Arena National Curling Championships, now scheduled for Worcester, Massachusetts in May. And I'm really excited to talk about my team. It's a great team. Our lead is a 15-year-old high school sophomore. Our, I'm the second on the team, and I'm clearly not as young as these other people I'm describing. Our vice skip is a 30-year-old specialist in information technology. And our skip is a brand-new high school graduate um, who's a guy who works in construction, and that's what he wants to do for his career but he can see angles, he can see 
he understands velocity. He can call shots better than anybody we know. So that's our team going off to national championships next year. Oh, that's fantastic. And I love the idea that curling is a sport that really just about anybody can participate in. I think that's wonderful. You mentioned there, Robert, that the the league kind of shut down in 1998. Was it at that point that you ended up coming out to Salt Lake? Was it sometime before then or after? So thank you. Um, my story with uh, the Olympics is really our story. And uh, when they were announced in 1995, that Salt Lake City got the games. We put together our plan to, um, to, to be significantly involved. We did not want to be spectators. Side story would say that in 1970, I started in the sport of luge. So, and although we're, we're Chicago-based, I would travel to Lake Placid, New York to do any training and competing and then come on back. Uh, there's one story where I ended up breaking my arm when I hit a wall pretty hard. And um, I didn't want to spend any more time in Lake Placid because I needed to come back to teach. So with this broken arm, <laughs> it was cold enough that I pressed it up the window of the car and drove 17 hours home. <laughs> And um, my wife was able to uh, kind of put me back together enough to be able to go to teach before I had other treatment. But uh, that's a whole different story. So uh, let's talk about the first part, which was getting our, our condo. So since, you know, we really both wanted to be as involved as possible, um, and we also have family in the Salt Lake area. So there's another incentive for us to look for a condo so the summer of 97, I think it was, um, I started searching for a condo while Robert was at his fraternity convention and really looked uh, everywhere for some type of housing and finally found something, but not until after Robert returned from um, his convention. So we purchased a condo and that kind of became our Salt Lake City home base. But it was Robert who really pursued the involvement. So it turns out that without knowing it, the condo that Silvana selected was at 5 East and 100 South, right on the edge of downtown Salt Lake, which resulted in being two blocks from what was then Slock headquarters. Um, and I believe that was at um, three east and two south. So we were pretty close to that. And I went knocking on the door and it was really a ring bell. I rang the bell <laughs> and a voice came through the speaker box. May I help you? Yes, I'm here. I'd like to be involved uh, with the Olympics. And I remember her laughing and going, you and 10,000 other people. <laughs> and there was this pause. And I thought, OK, I've got to sell myself a little bit here. And I said, well, um, I, it, it might be of interest to you that I, I'm a slider. I compete in luge. And I'm a curler. And I compete in curling. And there was this long pause. 
And I remember once or twice going, hello, are you there? Hello? Because <laughs> it was just this long pause. Finally, um, she said, just a moment. <clears throat> and the head of sport came to the door and opened the door just a little bit and said, um, tell me more about curling. Now, I thought they were going to ask about luge because there's not very many people who are involved with luge. It's not at that time very many people involved with curling. So, but I thought they'd talk about luge. And um, so I talked about everything I've shared with you with curling, you know, at the time and getting everything together. So they let me come in and I was taken on as a volunteer consultant. The problem was they had a sport uh, manager, Amy Preston, and Amy still lives in the area. She lives up in Park City, and uh, she was a national champion gymnast who had just completed her time at the University of Utah. Sport-minded, she understood elite sport, etc. She'd never curled. <laughs> She'd never seen curling. She didn't know much about it, so I was going to help with some of those clarification, and I was also going to be a significant uh, contact and reference point for her. So one of those reference points would be getting the assistant sport manager, and I re recommended Lisa Shaneberg, who lived in Madison, Wisconsin, but she herself had been a curling athlete of the year four times. She competed in the 1988 Olympic Games when curling was a demo sport. And then she curled again in the 1998 Games. But so this is right at that junction when she's going to do that. And um, so Amy met Lisa and Lisa met the other people she needed to meet in the interview process, and she was hired on as the assistant sport manager then. With that, I was elevated off a of volunteer consultant to staff, and I was given the title of sport administrator for curling. And then part of my job was multifolded in that whole thing. Um, among them, was uh, working in that two-story building on the corner. Then we moved to the 13-story, it was a three-story building on the corner, 13-story uh, building next to us, and then eventually to the Wells Fargo building. So things kept expanding with staff. What had to happen with us was get a lot of volunteers. We had to teach from scratch a lot of people in Utah how to curl. I want to get to that in a second here, Robert, okay. but before I do, what happens with the professorships? So you both are teaching at universities. Now you're getting involved with these Salt Lake 2002 games. Do you have to quit your jobs or are you able to take a sabbatical? I mean, what is it that, what's the situation with the with the work between Wisconsin and with Utah? Great question. So I wanted to be involved somehow and knew that the best way for me to do so would be to apply to be a volunteer on the medical team. So I did that um, with my you know, background as a nurse. And I had also been in the Naval Reserve. So I had a little broader experience than just you know, hospital nursing. 
Um, and I was accepted to be part of the medical team, but you're right. Then I had to figure out how was I going to at least take a year off. And so I had a good friend who worked at the University of Utah in their college of nursing who said, well, why don't you apply to be a visiting scholar and take a sabbatical? So that's exactly what I did. Um, I was a dean at the time and deans had not gotten sabbaticals previously, but I think I made a good enough case because of the research that I wanted to do uh, during that year and also that I would be back in practice, so to speak, working at the spectator clinic. So I was able to get what at the time was a half-time sabbatical, uh, but for the entire year. And uh, my assistant took over my job and it was a great year. That's That was mine. Mine was... Um... A little bit different. My university has a six-week break between fall semester and spring semester, and they put some courses into that six-week period of time. So I could guarantee that I'd be in Salt Lake that six weeks period every year. And we always end at the beginning of May, and we never start until after Labor Day. So I could guarantee full three months, almost four months. Um, in Salt Lake City, and I could do the rest of what I needed to do remotely. And the rest of that would be recruiting um, officials and, and arranging learn to curls and those kind of things. So that worked out really well for me. And then my university was very supportive. Um, we have a very strong um, physical education and kinesthesiology department, sport management department. I'm not a part of that, but it's a predominant thing at, at our university. So there were all the right people were in place to grant me this sabbatical for the year. So then uh, during that year, we arrived in May of 2001 and lived full-time in our condo until September 2002. So it was a perfect arrangement and since I was on full sabbatical uh, and Solana was on half, we still had enough money that that all worked out just fine for us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Now I want to come back to what you were about to say, teaching people about the sport of curling, because the state of Utah loves winter sport, but for them, winter sport is really skating and skiing, right? <laughs> and uh, so nobody really knew a whole lot about curling. So how did you approach teaching people, volunteers or people in the committee or others about the sport of curling? So we found through a lot of conversation, uh, a wonderful guy, Dale Sandusky. He's Scottish, comes out of West uh, Kearns, I think. And he had curled a long time ago. We found uh, another guy named Chris Strawn, a Canadian transferred here to be a chef at various different places, but a chef. And he had good curling experience in Canada. And then with Lisa, who was now full-time in Salt Lake and a good curler, we began to try to do some learn to curls. Now I kind of have to back up in the story to say that curling stones are not easy to come by and 
They have to be carefully calibrated in weight. There's a whole lot of things that go along with it, and you have to treat them well. So we had to get stones. There were no curling stones in Salt Lake City. So we got a set of stones. And at the time where we were curling and storing these stones was at a place called the Ochre Park Fitness Center. It's the precursor on the same property of the Olympic Oval. So at the time, it was covered by one of those air inflated bubbles and the oval was inside and we had an arena uh, a curling uh, ice sheet for figure skating and then we curled inside that building and the stones were stored off to the side and it's a rather unique arrangement, but it worked. And our biggest challenge, so now we got the stones, these would not be the Olympic stones. These would be stones we could use and transport around, which is what we had to do to, to get all this to happen. But our bigger obstacle was the reputation of curling coming out of the Midwest. Silvana mentioned the social aspect. After every curling match, the two teams sit together, commiserate. They might have some adult beverages. and the, But the reputation was did a lot of drinking. And a lot of people in Utah weren't too interested, particularly in having their children come to something where they thought we might be distributing adult beverages to anybody. And uh, we were very conscious of that and secure. I mean, uh, cautious. So we also uh, started to make connections with schools. So we had these curling stones that were not stones. Uh, you might remember from PE class for long times, those little scooters that you would sit on and move around, four-wheel scooters. Well, we made those into curling stones. So we adapted the sport so we could take it in and do a demo in a school, get students excited, maybe get teachers excited that they would bring their class over and then we could teach on ice with real stones, et cetera. Um, the other thing that didn't help us was the media. No matter how much we reached out to the media, come and learn to curl, um, uh, do an interview with us. There were jokes about curling, dismisses that it was a, um, an actual sport. Um, just no interest. There were several occasions where I called into morning talk shows on the radio to try to uh, clarify uh, some misconceptions they were sharing on the radio and in a program, and they just wouldn't even put me on. I couldn't get past the screener to try to correct this. So I'm going to jump ahead in the story. It's 2001 that Leslie Nielsen contacted us, he, not him, but this production group. They were making a movie in Canada. It would be titled Men with Brooms. It was gonna feature uh, uh, four curlers, men curlers who've had some problems, but they get back together to compete and they go on. 
And they were going to bring in Leslie Nielsen and the rest of this filming crew and, and the actors in the crew to Ice Sheet Ogden and uh, do film, use some of our venue to film some of the shots for the movie. Well, that caused a lot of media frenzy. Leslie Nielsen is coming in. Can we come to the venue? And um, our sport manager, Amy Preston, who I mentioned before, she was really savvy. And so she worked as best she could to say yes to them, but to also make sure they would hype curling and not just this actor who was coming in. So right, he came in in September of 2001, and then we were getting ready to host Olympic trials in December of 2001. We're every cycle, we're the last team selected <laughs> for competition in, in the Olympics. It's just the way our um, uh, selection process works. So it, we finished, I think, that on December 18th of that year, and then that team would compete in two months in the Olympics. Well, anyway, with building up to that hype of the Olympic trials and all these elite athletes coming in, finally we got contacted by some media people. We'd like to do a Learn to Curl. Where are we going to do it? All the venues were used for, you know, the whole story. They were used for everything, every kind of purpose. Every ice venue was booked. And now they want to do a learn to curl where all those other years weren't interested to do it, even when we begged them to come try our sport. Well, we're not ones to give up. So there were four crews involved in this. And I'll go back to the stones. Each stone weighs 42 pounds. For one sheet of curling, you need 16 stones. We had four sets of stones. That's about 2,600, almost 700 pounds of weight. So we had a crew I'm going to call the haulers. <laughs> and they hauled all of these stones to the Pine View Reservoir, because we're going to have to do this outdoors. And we really wanted this media coverage and wanted the media people to appreciate our, stone, our, our sport. So while Crew One is getting ready to haul these things out there, uh, Crew Two is on the ice, shovel, on the reservoir ice, natural ice, shoveling the snow painting, hand painting the houses into the ice to make it look good, trying to get the distance right. Uh, come back to that dedicated curling ice. You only need 140 feet, but you do need 140, 150 feet of space. When you're on natural ice, that's a harder ice and it's the stone's not going to go that far. So you have to calibrate where to put this other house and bring it in. They were out there working, doing all of that. And then the third crew of people would be the people who arrive to um, teach all these media people. Now, back to the haulers. 
when they got out there, they had to carry these stones two by two down the bank of the reservoir to the ice. At the end of the story, they had to carry them back up and bring them back to the ice. So um, quite, quite a big challenge for them. And then the fourth crew was the people trying to do a lot of PR assigned to the media folks and the teams, be a little coach on the team and work them out and that kind of thing. So that all worked out really well. I have to back up again now to the very first Learn to Curl that we did in 1997 at Ice Sheet Ogden. And I was explaining that our start blocks are called hacks because we have to hack into the ice with an ax and bury these start blocks so that we can push off and slide. Ice arenas don't want us coming to their facilities to hack with an ax into their ice. Now that makes sense. At this very first Learn to Curl where we had done that, um, there was a large number of people and we had several different instructors, uh, Lisa and the others I mentioned, and we're working. And I had a, a particular person, a guy in my group that I was working with, who was really listening attentively. He took really well to the sport. Things went really well. And I don't know if on the other sheets, the other instructors mentioned this story about the hacks, because it took a little bit of time away from instruction to tell a story. This guy comes up to me after we're done and he puts his arm around me and he says, Robert, I'm gonna revolutionize curling. You are? You just learned. I'm not gonna tell you what I'm up to, but I'm gonna be back next week. I know you're doing another learn to curl and I'll be here and I'm gonna revolutionize curling. In fact, I'm gonna come about an hour early. All right, I'll be here. I'll meet you an hour early. This is a true story. His name is Ian Hewton. He still lives in Ogden. He's quite active within city affairs there and he's a good curler. He had just graduated from MIT with a degree in engineering. He worked in the week to create a, a model of a hack made out of particular kind of metals and alloys with the rubber start blocks attached to this metal frame. And this metal frame we would set onto the ice and it would burn in. So we would keep it warm and then it would burn into the ice just a little bit. And there it was. Five minutes later, you could push off and you had great curling going on. When we had to hack into the ice, we had to pour hot water over the start block and wait a couple hours till it froze. That's what that crew had to do then out at Pineview uh, Reservoir. Had we not had, two years earlier, these hacks from Ian, so going out to the reservoir, we put them in um, coolers. 
that you'd use in the summer to go camping or whatever, but with hot water in them. So when we got them out, they were hot, they burned in, and we were ready to go. We didn't hack in. Ian revolutionized curling. Now, at that time, there was no arena curling club anywhere in the world because of this hack thing. Now, today, we have 400 arena curling clubs in the world, all of them using hacks with the name Ian Hewton on the structure. I love that story. That's fantastic. Well, there's one more thing that I'd like to add. It's really important to help us bring curling to all parts of northern Utah. We partnered with the Utah Winter Games, which at that time was revered and celebrated for hosting winter sports events for ordinary citizens. So they added curling to their instructional lineup in early winter and added curling to the competition lineup in mid to late winter. So in Utah, the reality is the first curling medals were awarded at Utah Winter Games curling competitions. Now, curling in the sport department was a small unit, so our budget was low. We'd have never been able to have provided the reach out and exposure for curling that we got through Utah Winter Games. So we owe much appreciation to Sean Mason and Spencer Henderson for working with us and supplying us with venues and volunteers to help us publicize curling, recruit participants, and actually try our sport. I love it. I love it. Silvana, I want to come to you for a moment. So Robert's out there, Pine View Reservoir, doing all this kind of stuff. In the meantime, it sounds to me like you are up at the University of Utah and you are doing work up there and you're also preparing to be a volunteer. And you mentioned in the area of medical services volunteering, were you also intending to volunteer at the ice sheet in Ogden as well in the sport of curling or were you intending to volunteer in another area? Well, I was open to wherever I would be assigned, um, but during the the couple of years that Robert was teaching and being involved with curling up in Ogden, I was there as well. And when the medical team was being assembled, um, primarily it was gonna be residents from McKD Hospital in Ogden, um, there were a couple of occasions where I actually sat with the medical residents and we talked about the sport of curling so that they could be acquainted with it because they also had no idea what this was. And so that led to you know conversations about, well, what could some of the sport injuries be? But then also, what are the other things we need to think about uh, for spectators and for the staff? And so I ended up being assigned to Ogden, which was really where I wanted to be anyway. And so I was not, there were two different medical setups or medical clinics, um, I think probably at each of the venues, but in Ogden, there was one that had a medical team made up primarily of uh, physicians and physical therapists for the athletes, which makes sense because those would be the types of services that they would need. And then there would be another one for the spectators and the volunteers and staff. And that's where I was. That was primarily nurses and physicians. So I was in the spectator 
place, which if you think about it, it was sort of like a, an ambulatory care clinic. If something came up with the staff, the, the uh, spectators, we took care of that. And um, kind of a story going along with that was the day that we opened the clinic, the opening of that venue, um, early in the morning, I'm thinking it was almost like 6 a.m. I was on that first shift. And our very first patient who came in was um, this diminutive woman who um, had passed out. Well, it ended up being the venue manager. She had been working so much in the weeks before, and I think worked through the night, that she came in and she was dehydrated, had low blood sugar, and we had everything working, you know, to take care of her on the spot. Um, and later we joked about the fact that, you know, she probably just planned this, right, so that she knew that everything was going to work on the medical side. And of course, that wasn't true. But um, yeah, so I, I would say that my job, um, a lot of it was preventive care. You know, we had um, a lot of um, security made up of police officers from all over the country. And a lot of them were really suffering from, you know, not being prepared for the altitude. Uh, we really had to push hydration, you know, just some of those basic kinds of things. I, I remember there it was not on my shift, but on another shift, there was a staff member who fell off of the loading dock um, and did need to be transported to the hospital. Um, one of the things that changed because it was 9-11 was how the ambulances worked with each other. So we had within the venue an ambulance that had been completely cleared for safety. So a patient would go into that ambulance go to the perimeter and be met by an ambulance from the outside. And the patient then was transferred from one ambulance to the next. So, you know, for me and probably for most of us, that's not typically how it happens, but you know, because of safety and security, that was one of the, the things that needed to change. So that was just one of the things that I remember from, from that time, but, you know, just really being, able to meet people from all over the world. And uh, another thing that we did was there were spectators who came to the venue thinking this is indoors. So, you know, I don't need to wear all those winter clothes that I do if I went to skiing up the way. Um, and so we provided warm blankets to keep people warm. <laughs> um, just some really basic things that, you know, just showed we cared about the people who came. It sounds like you had some interesting incidents uh, with staff and that happens every game. And I remember last year actually working at an event in Italy. You mentioned the venue manager passing out in the main offices of the organizing committee right before the game started. The head of medical services passed out. Same thing. People have to stay hydrated and and get some rest. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I'm curious about the injuries for curlers because it, on the surface you think, well, they're just pushing a rock around. Like how, how hurt can they get? They're, they're furiously sweeping ice and sliding around, but maybe slips and falls. I mean, the rocks are, the stones are heavy, right? The, as you mentioned, 42 pounds. So you, you know, what are some of the injuries that curlers typically suffer while participating in that sport? The easiest way to describe this would be to envision any curling that you might have seen on TV, anything on a curler, 
we take our body and we compress it so close to the ice to get that shot that's going straight to that target, which is the broom at the other end of the sheet. And in that compression, there are lots of things that, lots of ligaments that could get stretched inordinately. So elite curlers do a lot of exercises before their game to get that stretched out, but it doesn't mean you've gotten every one of them. Because in that delivery, your whole body is engaged in that movement process to get that stone delivered. So leg ligaments um, pulls in the foot because our, our foot that last comes out of the hack totally tips over so that we're, that foot is really sliding on the shoelaces of the shoe. So that's a pretty good bend there. And if you hadn't gotten it stretched out just right before, or I think sometimes some of the injuries were during practice or warm up mm-hmm. when they hadn't done enough of the exercises and stretches. Mm-hmm. And in the front, you've got to have total control of that delivery arm, whether it's right or left arm, but you've got to have total control of that. So you can get some shoulder things. Um, and maybe if you had, some other shoulder injury, that's going to exacerbate that. A lot of times that's the only way to sort of calm that down is with some ice, but it needs to be quick and heavy duty ice. Um, Savannah, some other ones you can think of? Well, those are the main ones. And I think, you know, which is why the physical therapists were there, especially the ones who had some specialty in sports injuries and sports massage so that they could help to prevent them, but then also could help to treat them so that curler could get back on the ice. So what we did, obviously, we did a learn to curl for the medical services team. That helped immensely because they were sore (laughs) after (laughs) two hours on the ice. And they said, my leg, my shoulder, my neck, my foot, my whatever, and they then could anticipate what a good number of those things were. Um, I think we also had some athletes who arrived with some cold or, or some virus that they might have had that the, the medical services had to keep under control so they could compete well, too. And the change in altitude that made a difference for everybody would have for the athletes as well. Okay, well, this is fascinating conversation. I'm really enjoying it. Silvana, you taught us a little bit about what was going on during games time up in the stands or uh, behind the accreditation line. What about near the field of play, Robert? You know, what was that like during games time, the competitions going on there? What was your role? What were you doing? And just how did all the competition unfold? So in curling and probably true in all the other sports at this level, the field of play and the competition is managed by the uh, head official. So technically, we, we were credentialed to go there, but that's not a place where we needed to keep our minds uh, because we knew the head officials and the assistant officials would keep all of this running. Now, there's a glitch that happened where we got very much involved. 
in the um, curling starts on the first day of competition and goes and continues until the last day of competition. We have 12 days of competition to get through the round robin play for 10 men's teams and 10 women's teams, and then get that narrowed down to be able to go into semifinals and then medal round competition at the end. In the middle of this, and I don't remember the exact day, we'd had a snowfall. So our roof was covered with snow. We have a, a, a domed roof and it warmed up during the day and it warmed up some more. And people were taking off their coats outside because it was sunny and you could tan. <laughs> However, this quickly melting snow on the roof found that one little bitty hole in the roofing for water to leak through and drop onto the field of play, which stopped all competition, had to get the roof fixed, but simultaneously had to resurface the ice, get it back to Olympic competition levels. There were, we were all involved in that process, plus trying to keep, and our volunteers, spectator volunteers were great, keeping them all occupied and the plaza, mm -hmm. uh, which really wasn't designed to hold 2,000 people, but 2,000 people were excused from the arena while we tried to fix this problem. So there they were on the plaza. It was a great problem to mm -hmm. solve. And I, I've got to give credit to the mascots because they're such a great team. Somebody let them know they were there in a flash out in the, um, the uh, social space outside the, the arena, mixing and mingling with people, dancing with them, getting pictures taken with them, get them with the staff and the we volunteers. Were, and we were just interacting with them, just engaging where you're from, you know, what are you looking forward to? What's been your best experience? It was, it was actually fun. And during that time when everybody was out there, they would ask, how come I'm wearing a green uniform and she's got a red uniform <laughs> and somebody's got yellow and somebody's got another color? Um, it was great. A lot of Olympic learning during that time. And then we got the problem solved. Um, whenever we have something like this, a national championship, a play down for national, a world event, anything Olympics, there's a chief ice maker who's a curling ice maker, not a hockey ice maker or a figure skating. Our ice is at a different temperature. Our ice, our humidity levers, levels have to be controlled. That became a problem that day because we had 2,000 people in. We had to get 2,000 people out. We had that changed the atmosphere. We had to change all the settings while we were fixing the leak and the ice and then begin to bring the people back in, change all the atmospheric settings. And the ice manager does all that without, without hesitation. That's what I do. That's how I fix it. They're always just these great technicians of ice and they know exactly what to do. So our problem was solved in a short order of time. And, and um, it was kind of fun in that regard. Well, it sounds like you had a fantastic experience with the games, but they end like all events do. 
you mentioned that in September of 2002, then you, I guess, head back to Wisconsin and resume your lives. What were, what were your takeaways from your Salt Lake experience? I'm going to give a story that's just so cool. So during test event time, um, I was helping, I believe, speed skating to receive their athletes at the airport. Just greet them, make sure they got to the right place. And I'm standing waiting for my next flight that's going to arrive. And I'm with two other people. And one of the people kind of leans forward and says, there's this young woman who keeps circling around looking at you. And she's been doing this a lot. Maybe you know her or maybe she wants to go out on a date. (laughs) So I turned. I'm at the Salt Lake International Airport, and it's one of my former students from UWL. She had been my advisee. She'd been in my own class and done very well. And I turned and recognized her right away. Oh, my gosh, it's so good to see you. And I say to her, what are you doing here? She says to me, what are you doing here? So we had a conversation. She was a first-year teacher in uh, Rifle, Colorado, and her flight from the Midwest came into Salt Lake before it would go to someplace near Rifle, Colorado, and she was on a a little layover. And what am I doing? Well, right now I'm reading these other things, but I'm part of curling and um, blah, 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 and we we talked a long time. And I invited her to come back and join us during the games. But the story takes a little twist a little while later that I was selected as one of the 25 people from SLAC who would get to carry the torch. And um, and even another twist to that story, that group of 25 was going to be announced by Mitt Romney in a formal ceremony out in Washington, D.C., on 9-11. So Mitt's out there. I didn't know it was a surprise to me because we'd been nominated by our colleagues in Slack that I was going to be on that list and, and named. Um, so eventually then I, I find out that I'm going to get to carry the torch and I'm assigned to carry in Eagle, Colorado. I don't know where Eagle, Colorado is. So I look it up on the map, and next to it is Rifle, Colorado. So I contact my student, and I say, I'm going to be coming. She arranges um, this whole day event with the students in in Rifle. We, We couldn't go on the ice, but I'd be able to talk about the Olympics, be able to talk about curling. I had... Great experiences. Those students were so receptive and so excited. And the principals and the teachers were just really appreciative of me spending the day with their students and building up a little Olympic hype. Now, I'm going to carry the torch the next morning early. That's all I knew, that it was going to be early. And, of course, I told those students, come out and... and, um, I guess I knew where I was going to be curling. I must have, like, or not curling, but running between point X and point Y. 
And so that next morning, when I got the torch and the flame leapt into my torch and I turned, I had just gotten off the van that drops you off there. Here were all these students. It was packed in the route that I carried from all these students from Rifle and probably some other people from Eagle. But they were all there cheering with me and yelling. And it was an amazingly exhilarating moment. Fun part of it is my two escorts almost immediately had to kind of grab my arm a little bit and say, slow down, dude. It's going to be over before you know it. Don't go so fast. I just took off running with this torch. <laughs> and uh, so then I was able to enjoy it with all these students there. And then at the end, a little bit of a surprise, my fraternity brothers, um, both alumni and uh, active chapter members from um, Denver had come over to uh, be at the end when I carried and have a little celebration with me. Just probably the most touching of memories for me. That's an incredible memory. <laughs> I hope that wasn't the end memory. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm like, what do you have over that? I mean, that's crazy. I should add that my picture, and I think our picture together, is still on a little coffee shop <laughs> in Eagle. It turns out that the owner of this little coffee shop had grown up in our area of Chicago, and we went there eventually after the run and all that in the carry because we were hungry for lunch. And then she met us and, oh, my gosh, we're from the same place in Chicago. And da -da 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 -da. So she took a picture and hung it on the wall. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I've already taken up more time than I planned on, uh, or we had allotted, and I could just sit here and have this conversation for hours, because I love these stories. They are so fun. Clearly, the games mean so much to each of you, because you're sitting there in your white Salt Lake 2002 <laughs> shirt, which look like they're brand new. I mean, they look like uh, they're very pristine, so you've really taken very good care of your Salt Lake 2002 shirts over the years. But let's let's come down to the our, what do we call it? Our home stretch, if you will. We have all of these assignments that we give people. And the first assignment that we have typically is a music assignment. So Robert and Silvana, is there a particular song or a musical group that when you hear it today, it reminds you of your time in Salt Lake? Well, the one that I always think of um, was an Olympic song, Light the Dream. Um, we have it on a CD. It's part of the governor's music and education program for kids. And um, just the words of it are so inspiring. And what I remember also is that um, our grandchildren would sit in the back of our car when we were driving somewhere and be singing this song. Um, it was just so much a part of the Olympics to have, you know, everybody involved. You know, from the school age children all the way to all of the adults and grandparents. So that's the one. And we have a CD and we play it every once in a while just to remind us of those good days. Would you happen to know who sings the song? Actually, the one that we have was sung by the then Mormon Tabernacle Choir. All right. Mormon Tabernacle Choir, Light the Dream. I hope to find it on Spotify. If I can't find it on Spotify, I might ask you to maybe upload the song or something we so we that. can listen to it. We already oh. did in case you asked. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Mine is also uh, from the music of the games. 
And it's an instrumental by Pierre Foldis and Michael Montes. And it's the Olympic Medals, Plaza, Fire and Ice Overture. And it's not so familiar, but if you were at any of the ceremonies where they awarded the medals, this is the overture they played. And when you listen to it, you can hear the part where the athletes are coming out, the eye opens up, and they're coming out forward on the stage. Then you can hear the intensity when they're getting their flowers and the, the crescendo to when they get their medals. It's amazing. Just amazing song. So that's it for me. All right. Well, I'm going to try to find those on Spotify. If I can't find them, maybe I can find them on YouTube or other locations, but I'm going to we'll try to find them those. to you as soon as we get off. <laughs> All right. Send me the songs. Yep. Okay. Now let's go to the food. Particular restaurant that uh, either of you like to frequent while you were living in Salt Lake City? Well, right around the corner from our condo is the Golden Braid Bookstore and the Oasis Cafe. And that the Oasis is always a place to go and just have a cup of coffee in their little courtyard in the morning. And um, it's still there. And we frequent it whenever we get ourselves to Salt Lake City. How about the hangout? Oh, the hangout? Mm, I would say, well, also the bookstore, because I love to just go in there and browse and, you know, find something else. And I don't know that this is a hangout, but uh, we went every week to music and the spoken word. Um, just always the music just being um, inspiring and and just wonderful to be a part of that. And when we come back to Salt Lake, we make it a point to go there. But we're also listening, um, video streaming or, you know, however we can while we're here in Wisconsin, because it brings us back to Salt Lake. I love that. Hopefully music and the spoken word can start up once uh, again after COVID allows the choir to congregate and sing. That's one of the things that uh, you just can't do with this pandemic is get in front of people, particularly people of certain ages together to open their voices and sing in close proximity to one another. So I hope that things abate so we can enjoy the choir once more. Well, right around the corner from us was the Sage restaurant. I'm vegan. Sylvana's gluten-free and dairy-free. And the Sage always had something for us. And on Tuesday night, they had this pizza buffet they would make this unusual pizza and then come around and serve a piece to everybody who was there. Then somebody else would come with a totally different pizza, all gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan, and serve it. Oh, that was so good. So good. Now, the Sage isn't where it was before. It's now called the Vertical Diner, but it's the same sort of um, menu format, and it's over at 2 West and 9 South. And so when we're ever back in Salt Lake City, that's where we go now, just like before, except this time we have to drive instead of walk. <laughs> All right. The Sage slash Vertical Diner and then the Oasis. And I am a fan of the Oasis as well. I think I've said it on previous podcasts. I really like the tuna steak sandwich that they have there. Very, very tasty. Okay. You've shared so many incredible memories, uh, inspiring, touching, but. I typically end on the goosebump moment. So give us your favorite memory, your goosebump moment of the games. Well, mine really came before the games. 
Um, we know that there was a lot of uncertainty and speculation about the games after 9-11. And shortly after 9-11, you know, I'm thinking it was within the, the week after I was scheduled for my volunteer training. And it was going to happen at Hillcrest High School Auditorium. And, well, was it going to happen? Well, yes, the volunteer training was going to happen. And so I went and so did, you know, a room full of volunteers. But we were all still wondering what was the announcement going to be. And Mitt Romney walked onto the stage. He had come back from being out east. And he gave the, the most positive, inspiring talk that I think a leader could give. And I remember him saying, we are going to welcome the world. It is going to be the best Olympics ever. And we all, I remember standing on our feet when the Star Spangled Banner went, um, you know, played and singing loudly and just tears down our faces. But it was the, the, the most valuable lesson in leadership for someone to be able to come out during a crisis and say, we're moving forward. We're going to do the best we can do. Um, so it was, it's, I always think of that. And I always think of Mitt Romney coming out on stage. That's a beautiful memory and so inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing that one. How about for you, Robert? Well, you know, as, as a staff member and as a volunteer, we were invited to go to the dress rehearsal for opening ceremonies. And of course we went, of course. It, speechless comes to mind because as we were talking about it, preparing for this interview, there's 10,000 moments from those opening ceremonies uh, that were highly impactive. And of course, at the dress rehearsal, we didn't get to see who would actually carry the torch in, but we saw how it was going to happen because there were stand-ins for those people who would come in later. And we didn't get to see who would light the torch, but we saw how that would be staged and, and all that. We saw all of the performance. We saw all of everything that was just so exciting. And part of that was looking around this crowded arena at the University of Utah and realizing these were all staff and volunteers who, and probably a lot of them were parents of children who were in the hugely orchestrated show. But anyway, such, such a good thing. And then I want to jump ahead with that because we also um, got to go uh, on our own. We chose to go to the opening ceremonies for the Paralympic Games. And before this interview today, we found it on um, YouTube and watched those ceremonies. And I just want to say, besides them being really impactive, that during that one was the best Star Spangled Banner rendition with everybody singing that I've ever heard in my life. And hearing it again this morning touched me as deeply today as it did then. Amazing things that were orchestrated within the games, whether it was education or culture or environment. That's what I remember. That's a great memory. 
I love those Paralympic ceremonies. I think I've mentioned it on a couple of podcasts. Stevie Wonder is one of my favorites. Stevie was a champion out there playing in the rain because <laughs> yeah. it was a cold driving rain through much of that ceremonies. And, um, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that ceremony. Uh, so thank you for, thank you so much for sharing that, that moment, that special moment with us. Part of what we did being from here in La Crosse, Wisconsin and being away for a year um, we wrote uh, weekly articles at first about our experience so that people back home knew what was happening. Starting in June. Starting in June, actually. And then during the time of the Olympics, we sent a message every day about what was happening, you know, a, a good memory or a highlight. And uh, so thanks to the Lacrosse Tribune for sharing our time with our community. We were front page each week and then daily. And um, that way everybody in town knew what we were up to. And uh, it, it caused great conversations. And when we came back, we were asked to do a lot of presentations for a lot of organizations like Rotary and um, AAUW and those different kind of groups in town. So that proved to be a really good legacy for us. I have one more thing to add that I forgot to say. So legacy, of course, was a really important part and the games produced a, a good legacy foundation um, that's been great. And curling didn't have that designated venue like Soldier Hollow, et cetera. But I do wanna give a shout out. We left the spirit of curling to be able to create four curling clubs in the Salt Lake Valley. So we curl at Cache Valley, we curl at Ogden, we curl at the Olympic Oval, and we curl in Park City. And that's our legacy with four different groups involving hundreds of people in curling in Utah. When we started with those two people I could identify, Dale and Chris. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking so much time out of your day to share your thoughts and your experiences and your passion for the sport of curling and for the Olympic Games. If people want to reconnect with you, Robert or Silvana, to share their games experiences, what's the best way for them to do so? I have an easy email address, and I'm glad to answer anybody's um, email message to me or I'd share it with Silvana. So I am R-L-K Richardson, because my name is Robert Lee Kenton Richardson, R-L-K Richardson at hotmail.com. All right, hotmail.com. Another person that has a hotmail address still. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, Robert and Silvana, it's been a real joy. Thank you so much for taking the time. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again next week. Robert, Silvana, thank you so much. Our pleasure. This has been so much fun getting ready for and executing in, in the interview. You're a great host. Thank you. Thank you.